Hi, I'm Kyle Homewood, Director of Community Engagement and Special Programs at Arizona Opera. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this episode of the Arizona Opera Podcast. In the episode, we'll be talking about this season's Marlou Allen and Scott Stallard Modern Masterworks presentation of Silent Night by composer Kevin Putz and librettist Mark Campbell. To give us an insight into this opera and its Arizona premiere, we'll hear from several key artists responsible for creating and performing the work. I'm Kevin Putz, composer of Silent Night. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. I am the librettist for Silent Night. I'm Henry Venanzi. I'm the chorus master of Arizona Opera, also the chorus master of Cincinnati Opera, and have had the good fortune to do this wonderful work in both of those companies. I'm Joseph Latanzi, and I'm singing the role of Lieutenant Odebert in Silent Night. Hi, everyone. My name is Julie Adams, and I will be singing the role of Anna Sorensen in Silent Night. I think as an audience member coming in, you can expect to see this uh, amazing, moving, engaging story that like grips you by the heart and the throat, almost. And it's this thrilling evening in the theater, unlike what you would typically see uh, at uh, the opera? Well, I think that that it will become uh, a classic simply because uh, it has all those elements that many operas and opera composers try to put together in the same piece and, and sometimes fall short. But I think Silent Night has everything. It has uh, basically... Uh, a very interesting conception of, of what is happening in the piece. It has several different plots going on at the same time among several different people. They're political, they're romantic, they're personal. Um, it's sort of like a, a, a very good TV show that runs. There's the main characters, but yet there, there are a lot of interesting side things that are going on. So dramatically, it's a very strong piece. But also, uh, in painting that drama, the music by itself stands as something that is valuable. Sometimes in operas, we have a good plot and so-so music, or we have you know a so-so plot and great music. I think that this piece is one of those nice incidences where, where the drama and uh, the vocal and orchestral lines are on a very high level together. What makes a difference is that it's humanizing something that happened, you know, a hundred years ago. We have, we can sort of put it at a distance a little bit, right? And by seeing these people on stage recreating or, or um, representing these characters that actually existed, people that actually existed in these trenches, and you see, like, within the first five minutes, there's this huge battle. It's this epic action-filled moment, unlike, you know, anything I certainly have ever, ever staged or really have seen on stage, it just, you can't help but be swept up and just pulled in and want to find out what happens next. And you really don't have to wait for that because it, the pace is so cinematic. It's like, you know, like Law and Order a little bit. It's like you get a scene and then chuck-ong and then another scene, chuck-ong, and it just keeps going. And you don't have to wait for the good part. It just keeps, keeps coming. That was director Michael Schell, who's directing these performances of Silent Night at Arizona Opera. Also, he was the creator of the production that originated at Opera San Jose that will now be coming to the Arizona Opera stage 
The events and the people that he was just describing are the subject matter for this opera. Those that participated in a spontaneous Christmas truce that took place during the first winter of World War I in 1914. I think it truly is about um, that human connection. The soldiers that you see in this show go from fighting each other to then coming over, over the, the top, essentially, is what the trenches were. They climbed over into this no man's land. And they, for the first time, greeted people that, in, historically speaking, these people have hate, they hated each other more than any other foe hated each other. And that the fact that they should be sharing wine and food and drinking and, and wishing each other, you know, Merry Christmas and, and happiness, you can't help but be moved by that in a, in a way that history books don't necessarily teach us. You know, uh, and I know we've seen war films, we've seen, you know, great films like Saving Private Ryan or any of those really good, powerful war movies. But when you see it on stage and it's in front of you and the people are living, breathing characters in your face, that distance is removed and it's so immediate in that you experience it along with them. So I think that's why it will resonate with this audience. This is the composer of the opera, Kevin Putz, telling us just a little bit about how this piece came to be. The whole thing was quite a surprise to me because I had not written an opera before. I had not written a scene of an opera or a chamber opera or anything. I suddenly got a phone call from Dale Johnson, who was artistic director of Minnesota Opera, and he heard some of my orchestral music and thought that I had the right voice uh, for an operatic adaptation of Joyeux Noël, which is a, a beautiful French film from 2005 by Christian Carillon. And, uh, you know, he Dale said on the phone, would you be interested in doing an opera with us? And, you know, it wouldn't necessarily have to be Joyeux Noël. It uh, could be, you know, I'm thinking about some other things. But I could tell he, his heart was really set on, on this, um, this film that, that was based on the, um, the spontaneous truce that, that happened along the, the, the front uh, on the first Christmas Eve of World War I. And, uh, you know, I, I watched the movie um, in a hotel room. I was in Houston at the time. I watched the film and I thought, I thought you know, uh, I, you know, I could have, with my very rudimentary knowledge of opera and, of course, no feeling at all for what I would do with an opera, you know, let alone what anybody else would do. Um, I thought, actually, I could imagine many of these scenes um, on the opera stage and I could imagine, okay, like if I ever did write an opera, wouldn't it be great to have a big chorus and, you know, a big orchestra? And I, I could, I had a sort of a sense for the kind of musical landscape that the piece might inhabit. And, and so I said, of course, yeah, I'll do it, you know? And, and, and the way it worked is that, you know, I didn't know any librettists. Um, and so he, so Dale knew that we would need somebody uh, very experienced and, uh, you know, a real pro uh, in the opera world. And so he, he put Mark Campbell and, and, uh, and me together. And, you know, we just got along really well from the, from the start. Now we hear from Mark Campbell, the librettist of Silent Night, who's responsible for setting the words of the piece. 
I guess it would have been around, um, let's see, it premiered in 2011. So it would have been about 2008 or 2009 um, that Dale called me back in the day when people called people um, and and said, um, hi, uh, there there's a I'd already written like a dozen operas about then at that point. Um, and he and he was familiar with my work and he called me up and he said, hi, there's an idea for an opera I'd love you to look at. Um, and then I'd also like you to listen to this guy's music, this composer's music named Kevin Putz. Could you do that and then get back to me on Tuesday? So I watched the movie and I called him and I said, I think it's a, uh, it's a great idea. I think there are some issues, you know, in making it stage worthy, but it's a, it's a terrific story. And, um, you know, I, I could see how you were attracted to it. And then I also listened to Kevin's music and I just was amazed because Kevin's music has such a strong sense of narrative in it. He's always telling a story. And so I called Dale, you know, when I spoke to Dale, I said, I would really love to go forward with this. I think it's a great idea. And I love the composer's music. And he said, he said, great, we're talking to other librettists, so we'll get back to you. Um, and it's really a real vote of confidence. I said, the only thing I'm going to tell you, Dale, is that Kevin has not written an opera before. I do recommend that whoever you get for this project, find someone who has experience writing librettos and it has experience writing opera because there's so much more to writing an opera than just writing the music. You know, there's a whole world of collaboration and, and, um, you know, it's, the, it, it really is the most collaborative art form. I think of of all the performance arts. The next step was was meeting Kevin. We went to a restaurant around the corner from where I live. I live in the West Village, in New York, and we went around the corner on Hudson um, to this little restaurant where I happened to have dinner last night. And we sat outside and we talked about music and we talked about politics. And then at the end of it, we just and we also drank a bottle of wine. And at the end of it. Um, we both decided that we were going to work on it together. Minnesota Opera got the rights to the movie. I went away and I wrote the first act in about five or six days. Everything was all there. I just had to kind of reduce it. The opera libretto is very, very different from the movie. But there was enough in the movie that I could work with. I didn't have to make anything up. It was all there, pretty much. It just needed kind of juggling and changing and stuff to make it stage worthy. Then I presented Kevin with act one and then also an outline of act two. He started working on it while I worked on act two. With anything that's based on certainly a film, which has its own music. Um, I was a little concerned that I would somehow echo the music of the film, but you know, I, I, I really stopped watching it once I had Mark's libretto in my hands and I just sort of dealt with the libretto and the kind of music that it inspired from me. And I really didn't have any um, preconception about the style of the piece. Um, I started at the beginning and the beginning to me was so exciting because it begins in the style of another composer, which is just such an interesting idea that there's a scene in, in the Berlin opera house and the two opera singers are singing a duet in the style of of, uh, of a late 18th century composer. And I thought, how interesting, you know, to begin an opera and try and sort of imitate someone else's voice. And the audience will think, well, are we at the right opera? I thought this is a contemporary opera. I mean, it's a really interesting idea to start so far from the subject, you know, that where this, isn't this opera about the trenches of World War One? And here we are in an opera house hearing music that sounds like Mozart. So I, 
I was just so fascinated by the way um, the the audience could be led into the piece in such an unusual way. So I began there, and then once there needed to be music that was not from the late 18th century, um, I, my own voice, you know, came in as this German officer interrupts the uh, this opera and says that war has broken out, and then that's where my own music began to assert itself. And um, I just sort of went from there. You know, <laughs> certain themes, certain styles recur throughout the opera. You know, music that's associated with a certain character or situation comes back. And there is a kind of pervasive, I call it the war theme. Like, And that's the first music that's not uh, in the style of, you know, Mozart or something that you hear. Um, it's a very simple... Um, melody based on the interval of the fifth and it's kind of ominous and and it it returns many times throughout the opera in fact the opera ends with with this music and the opera goes through so many different stylistic um places you know um as the scenes progress and i think my main concern was that there was real contrast from scene to scene um not that the French music sounded really French or the German music sounded German, but just that they were different from one another, that you felt when you were going from one scene to another that you were really in a different place. Um, but that the, this war theme, you know, that, that keeps uh, asserting itself throughout the opera, I think that's what hopefully ties the whole piece together. It feels um, like there's an overarching musical theme which hopefully connects everything. Well, part of it, like I mentioned before, was reduction. Um, you know, you can't, there's just certain things that you can do in opera that you, that uh, there are certain things that you can do in movies that you can't do on stage. Um, a very simple example of that is when a character is sad about something, you just focus in on the face and you see a little sadness on the face. In opera, you know, people are like miles away. The audience is miles, miles away from a face or, you know, and so you have to, often a character has to sing what they're feeling. I mean, and also, let's remember, it is opera. That's where we sing what we're feeling. Um, so there were a number of, of changes. I, I would say one of the, the first, um, one of the first things I did was identify where I wanted to play the in, place the intermission. And that sounds like such a mundane thing. But actually... Um, the, the placement of the intermission is a very important decision because you want to make sure all of the events that you've written kind of coalesce at that moment so that when, they, when the lights come down on Act 1, the audience stands up going, well, I have to come back for Act 2. I have to know what happens. Um, you know, and, and I have to see what happens next. And so that's one of the first important decisions. And, of course, movies don't have... Uh, intermissions generally. So, you know, that's, that's one decision. But of course, the biggest decision is I'm writing words that are meant to be sung. They're not spoken. And so there has to always be both um, a simplicity in the text, but also an elevation of the text so that it sounds right when it's being sung. Um, I was really fortunate in this opera in that um, I chose to write it in five languages. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was, I, I got discouraged, but I said, no, I, I mean, I was, I 
people said, why would you want to do that? And I was kind of like, well, I don't want to hear opera singers doing bad German accents, for one thing. Um, but also because the opera audience is used to works in foreign languages. We've got super titles. It's not a new thing for an opera audience to um, experience a story in a foreign language. And also opera singers all learn, know how to sing in foreign languages. That's part of their education. And in one way, there were a couple of things that this, this decision did. Um, one is that it allowed me in a certain subversive way to show that artists might be better communicators because they speak like so many languages. The, the tenor in Silent Night, for example, is the only person who can translate the English, the French, and the German. So he's always around helping these people speak. Um, and uh, well, actually the German officer, um, Horstmeier, does speak, speak the languages as well. But um, that's like a, a little bit of a later story. Uh, and then the other thing that I always loved about having it in, in these foreign languages is in, in, in French, German, and Scottish, um, is that it allowed me to, for example, if there's a duet, it becomes a trio because there are two people speaking, but then someone has to translate. And that makes for a cooler musical moment and even a kind of a cooler music, um, you know, moment for the audience because they're in on the translation. So, um, it was a, it was a, a fun decision. Unfortunately, you know, it was easy for me to translate these things into words, but for Kevin to have to set French and German is a lot, you know, that's a lot more of a challenge than having to just put translated into words. And one of the things that I think is so amazing about Kevin's music is how adept he is at very subtly delineating the difference between French phrasing and German phrasing. This is Henry Venanzi, the chorus master at Arizona Opera, also echoing compliments on Kevin's ability to set music in distinct styles. Uh, yeah, it certainly does, especially uh, the difference between the basic uh, continental European people and the British Isles people who are the Scottish. I mean, Scottish music is really a very distinctive kind of thing because of its rhythms and, of course, because of the presence of the bagpipe. Um, the German music is much more rhythmic and, I would say, conceived um, that way in terms of Bach and Beethoven, things like that. And the French music has much more to me a sort of a Debussy quality where it's where the, harmonically it's different and it's uh, sort of not as rhythmic. It's sort of placed according to the language accents and sort of the whole temperament of the way different people from different countries deal with the same situation, which I think is the crux of this whole thing. I, th I think they've painted that musically quite well in this piece. One of the best examples of these different languages coming together in the same opera is in the sleep chorus that takes place during Act One. Here's Kevin talking about his excitement for this particular part in the opera. That sleep chorus in particular was something that I I was really interested in writing. In fact, it was one of the first things that Mark, Mark and I talked about. He said, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if um, the opera should be in, in the three different languages, right? So it should, you know, the Scottish soldiers will sing in English and the Germans in German, the French in French, because for one thing, we can have this distance um, f between them, you know, a real sense of alienation that they have to conquer when they, when they um, decide to enact this, 
spontaneous truths so that they'll create distance. But also, wouldn't it be wonderful to have them all singing, falling asleep together the night after the first battle and um, falling asleep and, and singing about being home in three different languages. And I thought, oh, that's such a beautiful idea. And the reason why I wanted that is to just show the commonality between these, sh these soldiers, that the Germans are as much a victim of this war as the French and the Scottish. And so they sing this chorus together, and we call it the sleep chorus, where all the three troops are just trying to figure out a way to sleep in this horrible war. And so it was something that I, I skipped to, I skipped ahead to and wrote, even though I wasn't really there yet. It's one, you know, I, I really tend to write in a, in a linear way, you know, because I, I believe I want to experience the piece as the, as the listener will experience it. So I need to feel exactly what will come after what I've done previously, you know. So I, I work through the piece in a very linear way. But that, that chorus, um, which we call Sleep, and the aria, that Oderbear sings right before it, uh, that's something that I worked on um, ahead of time, and I found my way to it uh, eventually. But um, yeah, that was, uh, that was a real pleasure to, to compose that and to, to, um, you know, to set Mark's words in that moment. As you'll soon find out, this part in the opera is the favorite of most people that see it. Here is soprano Julie Adams, who plays the role of Anna Sorensen in Silent Night, talking about how this particular moment in the opera truly speaks to her. Then we'll hear from baritone Joseph Latanzi, who's responsible for singing this music as Lieutenant Odebert. And we have an incredible Odebert, Joseph Latanzi. Um, his first act aria is um, some of the most beautiful music that I've ever heard. And it's I find it so fitting that this gorgeous aria is right before, I think, the most beautiful chorus scene there is, the sleep chorus, the male chorus of the soldiers. That just brings chill. It just sends chills. It's so incredibly beautiful. But Odebert's aria is so haunting. I mean, he's going through, he's he's basically going through all of the deceased soldiers. And you know this, he's going through, he's reciting their name and their age and where they're from and he's basically logging it but the way that kevin writes it oh it's just the most beautiful music um it gets me every time you know no pressure having the favorite part of many people no it's a beautiful beautiful aria and um again i think the piece is so well constructed in on so many levels so i think what we get here after the battle, it means chaos and all the army singing together. This is a really still moment. Everybody can kind of relax. The audience isn't confronted with a lot of, of sound and yelling and, and the first really introspective moment, I think, in the piece. And I'm also lamenting the fact that I've just lost my wallet, which has my photo of my wife. And that's the only memory I have of her. Um, we learn later that we can't get any information through the front lines. I don't know if she's okay. I don't know where she is. I don't know if she's had the baby. I don't know the baby's gender or anything. And I've lost the one physical object that connects my mind to my home and to my life before the war. And so he's trying to work, trying to do a good job as the lieutenant, and keeps coming back, uh, switching between his job and thinking about his wife. I mean, literally, section by section, you know, writing names, saying I lost your photo, writing more names. Singing the role of Lieutenant Odebear in this excerpt is baritone Liam Bonner. Oh, 
He has this kind of delirious, sleepy, exhausted fantasy about what might happen, uh, what might be happening at home in that moment. And he doesn't, again, he doesn't know anything about the baby. He doesn't know if she's okay. He doesn't know if they're even alive. But he's imagining the young infant crying and he's imagining his wife soothing the infant and uh, singing a lullaby sweetly, and I think it's really sweet. The the thing that brings him to sleep is he says, "I, you know, I, and I hope the baby is letting you sleep." And then after saying that, he's kind of um, reminded <laughs> of how badly he and everyone needs some rest. And my favorite part of the opera is the sleep chorus when all the soldiers are in their bunkers and they're all dreaming, and it, and it's in three languages. They're basically saying the same thing in three languages, where it is um, actually 16 parts, or 12, I should say, four parts in the three armies in three different languages going on at the same time. Uh, uh, for me, it's the highlight of the piece musically, and it's a, it's a testament to uh, the composer how you can actually hear in three different languages the sentiments of these soldiers, but it all goes into a big musical whole that's very satisfying, sort of like the Rigoletto Portet, a sort of magic of opera. So that's, that's why I think that's a, it's a major piece and musically will really survive among contemporary operas. When you hear this beautiful music, you also have to remember this is the first time Kevin Putz ever composed an opera. It's truly amazing. Here he tells us a little bit more about his approach to an operatic setting of music. Well, you know, I think I had been um, trying to tell stories with all the music I had written before this. You know, so if I wrote a symphony or a concerto, there was some kind of narrative that was at play. I was always thinking of an emotional narrative. And I think that the music was kind of generated in that way. So when I was able to take an actual story, not an imaginary story, but an actual one with real characters and real situations, I just found it it just ins- it, it was the most inspiring activity that I had experienced in a long time. Um, I, I, I felt a real kind of palpable sense 
of excitement um, that if I got this right, that it could really feel this way on, on the stage for the audience, that this emotion, whatever the emotion of the scene, wherever the situation could be felt very strongly if I found the right music for it. And I think just that the fact that it was a concrete, like a real story um, was the most exciting part of it for me. Perhaps equally important to writing the words and setting the music for an opera is the act of bringing it to the stage. This is generally the role of the director and designer of a specific production. However, librettist Mark Campbell definitely had his own specific thoughts about how this piece should be staged. It's almost a problem with me as a librettist because I, I, um, I see things too clearly. For this piece, I saw three bunkers. I, I, I made a choice that um, most of the story takes place in the bunkers, in the three bunkers. There's only really one scene once you're past the prologue, there's really only one scene that takes place outside of the bunkers. And so I needed to have three bunkers on stage at all times. But yes, I did envision it. And it's funny because we've had like five or six productions of this opera now. The first one was by Eric Simonson directed it um, for Minnesota Opera. And that was on a double turntable, you know, kind of like Les Mis fashion. And um I remember, you know, I told him, I said, I don't want a turntable because everyone will think it's like by Miss. And then suddenly there was a turntable. And I said, well, no one will ever produce this thanks to you. You know, <laughs> famous last words, because that production, I think, has been done like eight to ten times. You know, so I, I love when I'm proven wrong in, in, a, in a good way like that. And then there's another production directed by Tomers Woolen with a set by Aaron Rahm. And that um, is on three different tiers. So basically the bunkers are going up instead of sideways. The production that Arizona Opera is doing um, is actually one of my favorite. It is, it, it is the closest to the way I envisioned the opera happening. And I saw it at San Jose Opera, and I've been working with the stage director and just like seeing how we can make this just a little bit better for Arizona Opera. And he's really really collaborative and wonderful. Michael Schell, um, and we've, we've had a couple conversations because I really love, I really love what he did. I'm very excited that Arizona Opera is producing um, that version. With this wonderful vote of confidence from the librettist, here's Michael Schell talking about how he conceptualized this particular production. My approach to the production was really trying to be as authentic and true to life as we could in theatricalizing the trench experience for these men. That's why the set consists of just three trenches and they rotate around because I knew I had to move the scenes very quickly, but I also wanted the audience to feel that claustrophobic nature of what it was like for these men in the trenches. Now we don't have the dirt or the mud or the rats, thank God, but they can at least have that experience and understand what that was really like. And then also the other thing about these trenches, which I think is really cool, the set designer and I knew that this war, the way they were fighting it was changing. It became more mechanical. And the men that were fighting on the front weren't, their tactics weren't being changed by the generals that were all safe somewhere else. They kept charging over the top and getting annihilated by machine guns. And they kept doing that and doing that and doing that. And finally, then it was bombing. So the, the introduction of machinery into warfare was a significant change in World War I. So the trenches also have this kind of 
tank-like feeling. When they first appear, they kind of move slowly like tanks and they have this structure to them that is very, um, very specific. It's not uh, sort of earth-like. It's, it's very, almost like steel. And I, I thought that was really important to sort of show that mechanical type of warfare was coming into play. And so those were the really important things for me, the humanity as true to life as possible, and then sort of making a comment on how war was changing. It turns out the composer is pleased as well. The production that I first saw in San Jose that Arizona Opera is doing is much more fluid. You know, it's these pieces kind of slide around on the stage. And I think it's a really good solution. The challenge of the piece, of course, is, is that you don't have two armies, you have three. So the, the, Scottish, the Scottish and the French are on one side, so to speak, and then the Germans are on the other sides. But you've got to deal with these three um, nationalities, and it's not an easy thing to do. And the other thing is that the scenes move very quickly from one to the next. Um, it's very, very short scenes that suddenly you're going to change scenes, you know, within a few seconds sometimes. And um, it makes for a, a really interesting cinematic kind of feel to the opera. Um, but it's tough to stage. And I think um, the solution that, that Arizona Opera is, is presenting is, is uh, great. With the opera written, the production designed, now it's up to the singers to truly bring this opera and its characters to life. Once again, this is baritone Joseph Latanzi talking about his approach to interpreting this role of Lieutenant Odebert, particularly when he has a film to look back on as the origination of his character. Yeah, you know, I will be totally honest. It, I don't like to have that come into my process at the beginning. So I actually have not seen the film on purpose uh, so far uh, because I want to interact with the words and the music on my own and I want to build my own thoughts and my own character and my own feelings about it and then I think you know we're we're midway through the process here of staging and so I think now would be a really great time to reference the film and maybe uh, pull out one or two things that I like um, details that can be added on top of my interpretation of the character. Answering the same question this is soprano Julie Adams who's portraying the role of Anna Sorensen. In the film this particular role was played by well-known actress Diane Kruger. Yes and no. I I remember I did watch the film probably once and that was it. Um just because I wanted to see what it is. I think it's always nice obviously if you're if you know, yes, as a singer and if you're preparing this role and it's based off of a film, a book or whatever. Obviously, you should probably go to the original source and either read the book or watch the movie. Um but the, the beautiful thing about being an artist in the first place is, okay, so, I, you know, I was able to get her character from that. And now it's my job as the opera singer to bring myself as Julie Adams to the role of Anna. How would I react in this situation? And I think that's, you know, we, we do that as opera singers all the time. Um, it's adding our flavor to the role. And the thing, too, with... with um, being based off of a film um, is that at the end of the day, that was a film 
this is the opera and people need to know that it's going to be different. It's based off of yes, but it's not going to be a carbon copy because I know that some people, uh, we've all been there where, you know, if we love a book so much and then it's made into a movie and people go, wow, I liked the book better. You know, I think it is important to just remember, um, you know, this is a different adaptation of it. I mean, Diane Kruger gave a beautiful performance, no question. The character of Anna Sorensen is, in fact, an opera singer. This lends itself wonderfully to a very poignant moment in the film and also the opera in which Anna sings a Christmas mass during the truce. In the movie, this singing is voiced over by opera soprano Natalie Desay. The music that was composed for this moment in the opera is considerably more challenging, as you'll hear from this description by Julie Adams. Literally, I do say a prayer before having to sing it because it's quite scary. Um, you, Especially, you know, and it's funny because he has a revised version now where you can take it a third lower, <laughs> which is kind. But um, for, for you music folks out there, it's uh, the soprano has to sing a high uh, D flat, C sharp. Uh, and this is all a cappella. So you're very exposed. It's quite scary. And for me, I, yes, I have the note, but at the same time, it's as a lyric soprano. It's not something I want to be sitting up there for days. <laughs> so um, it's very challenging. It's, it's extra. It's probably the thing that makes me most nervous in this opera is singing that prayer. But, um, but then again, the moment is so beautiful because seconds before is when, She's revealed to all of the soldiers on the battlefield, and they probably haven't seen a woman in six months, you know, to a year, and they're they're flabbergasted, and it's the way that it's staged is so beautiful. So I try to calm my nerves by just remembering that moment and looking at, you know, all these guys' faces and making it conversational rather than, oh, gosh, this is, this is a crazy moment I'm so scared but it is it's incredibly difficult (laughs) so the challenge is to make it you know beautiful yet sounding very easy and so I hope I do that in this excerpt you'll hear soprano Karen Wolverton
This and other moments in the opera combine together to make what is a beautifully moving piece. In addition to the way that Silent Night has affected audience members and the artists involved in creating it, it has received a considerable amount of critical acclaim as well. In 2012, Silent Night was named the Pulitzer Prize winner for music. I couldn't resist asking Kevin about this life-changing moment. Minnesota Opera actually decided that they should send it, um, send the piece to the Pulitzer Committee um, around the time we were going into dress rehearsals of the piece. And, you know, I was just concerned with trying to get the piece to work. And, you know, is this actually going to, is this actually going to work on the stage with the lighting, with the, you know, the costumes? Will this feel like a piece? Will you be able to hear the singers? You know, I, I hadn't written for an orchestra in a pit before. So I thought, you know, maybe they're, the singers will be covered up. I just didn't know. Um, so I was, I was really not even thinking about that, but they wanted to send it. And I said, okay, great. Well, let's, let's do it. And, you know, I, the way it works is that you, you just have no idea, you know, what's going on. I, I didn't realize the piece was an, even a finalist for the, the award. And, um, and then, uh, I suddenly one day got a phone call and they don't call you. The Pulitzer committee doesn't call you. You get a call from the newspaper. So I got a call from the Associated Press. <laughs> you know, they said that you won this award. It really was just a, a shock. And um, I didn't think of my music as, you know, maybe the, the kind that would get, be given an award like that. But, um, you know, the award has changed a lot. You know, they, they've opened it up to many different genres now. And um, so, you know, it, it, but it was, it, it did change, you know, it changed my life. And, you know, it, it was, uh, something that, uh, you know, you're forever called a Pulitzer Prize winning composer. You know, this is what people want to say. It's the first thing they say. So it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, the only interesting, the kind of strange thing about it is that for an opera, you know, they still give the award to the composer when in fact, Mark and I, you know, we did, we're equals in this, in this piece. And so, you know, really he, he deserves as much credit as I do for it. Before you start to feel bad for Mark, you should know that he is critically acclaimed as well, receiving multiple awards. His opera, As One, with music by Laura Kaminsky, is currently the most performed new opera in the United States. And when I spoke to him for this podcast, it was literally days after he won a Grammy for his role in The Revolution of Steve Jobs, with music by Mason Bates. Yeah, that was nice. Was <laughs> a, a really, really nice surprise. Um, you know, it's for the Revolution of Steve Jobs, um, which premiered at Santa Fe Opera and is going to Seattle Opera in two weeks. It was at the Indiana School of Music, the uh, Jacob School of Music, last fall, and then next year is going to San Francisco Opera. It was fun for me. Just last night, I uh, saw on Instagram, Seattle Opera had posted a, a, a quote that, that you had said, and they posted it from Grammy Award-winning librettist Mark Campbell. Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, which, isn't that fun to have that, that tied to your name? That, that'll be forever. <laughs> no, it's great. To be frank, though, I, the Pulitzer Prize, you know, was, was pretty damn exciting. Um, when, when that happened for Silent Night. So, um, you know, I'm not going to stop until there's a Nobel Prize. How about that? <laughs> I know that won't happen, so it's an easy dream. <laughs> in addition to the success and impact that Silent Night has had in the opera world, it has impacted a broader community in perhaps a much more significant way. I've had 
veterans of even very recent wars write to me and write very moving things about what the production uh, has meant to them and the way it brought back memories, good and bad. Um, there was even a member of the chorus at Austin Opera who is is a, a veteran, and um, he found the, the experience of singing in the opera absolutely, uh, well, he, he said going from, you know, the extremes of emotions, you know, from uh, gut-wrenching sadness to a kind of recollection of the fear he felt. Um, it, it's quite, quite, it's been an incredibly moving experience for me and almost one that's hard to face head on. This has been a whirlwind tour with creatives involved with the production of Silent Night at Arizona Opera. I hope that we've given you an insight into what to expect with the opera, and similarly, that you'll find your way to the theater to make interpretations of your own. Arizona Opera will perform Silent Night in Phoenix, March 1st through 3rd, and in Tucson, March 9th and 10th. More information can be found at azopera.org. Silent Night is part of the Marlou Allen and Scott Stallard Modern Masterwork series. Arizona Opera's production of Silent Night is made possible by generous support from Marlies A. Bider, Dr. Rex and Arlen Brewster, the National Endowment for the Arts, Marlou Allen and Scott Stallard, SRP, the J.W. Kiekefer Foundation, Margaret T. Morris Foundation, Dr. Judith G. Wolfe, Rosellen and Harry Papp, Ann Snodgrass, Sharon Landis, James and Patience Huntwork, Bankers Trust, and an anonymous donor. The musical excerpts you heard in the episode are from Minnesota Opera. I'm Kyle Homewood. Thanks for listening to the Arizona Opera Podcast. I look forward to seeing you at the opera.